X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. My name is Jeff Smith. I'm from Portland, Oregon. It is Thursday, February the 18th. Yesterday, back in the day, Rush Limbaugh passed away, a giant in radio and in the conservative movement. Other than Rupert Murdoch, it's hard to think of another American who's had a bigger impact on the shape of American politics over the last 30 years, certainly within the conservative movement. But even as I compare with Rupert Murdoch, recognize there would probably be no Fox News but for Rush Limbaugh. When Barry Diller, former head of Paramount, pitched the idea of Fox News to Rupert Murdoch, it was Limbaugh's dominance of AM radio in rural and exurban areas that gave him the faith that it could work. And that move, turning conservative politics into profitable entertainment, has fueled a generation of a communications mechanism unrivaled by any non-totalitarian state in the modern age. And because modern communication technologies were only in the modern age, that means more than any time in any era in any place in the history of the world. If you've enjoyed that entertainment, if you think the direction it has moved the Republican Party is in the direction that you like, if you think it's moved the country in the direction that you like, you will mourn Rush Limbaugh's loss in a special way. But if you believe climate change is real, if you believe the election was not stolen, if you believe Donald Trump was not good for America, and potentially if you lament current wealth disparities, if you think that more people should vote rather than fewer, you might recognize Rush Limbaugh's life in a different way. Today, back in the day, February 18, 1946, federal courts ruled against segregation in schools. Mendez versus Westminster set an important legal precedent for future court cases, including one you've heard of, which is Brown versus Board of Education that happened years later. The Mendezes were a Mexican-American and Puerto Rican family living in California. They sent their kids to school, and they were redirected then to a separate facility just for Mexican-American students. The Mendez family recruited other local parents for a federal court case challenging that type of school segregation. Unlike Brown versus the Board of Education, Mendez versus Westminster did not claim racial discrimination. Mexicans were considered legally white at that time. And by the way, covering racial history in America, it's hard not to say stupid things because there has been so much stupidity in that repeated evil. So instead, in Mendez, they claimed discrimination based on ancestry and supposed language deficiency. They said segregation denied their children their 14th Amendment rights to equal protection under the law. They argued their case, and Judge Paul McCormick ruled in favor of the plaintiffs. The basis that the social, psychological, and pedagogical costs of segregated education were damaging to Mexican-American students. By the way, in case you were wondering the timeline, Brown versus Board, that ruling wasn't until eight years later in 1954. February is Black History Month, and today we recognize Charles Jordan. Charles Jordan, the first black city commissioner in Portland starting in 1974, born in 1937, spent his early life in Texas before joining the Army, earned his Bachelor of Science from Gonzaga University. In 2001, he was awarded an honorary doctorate of law by the University of Vermont. Shout out, by the way, to Aaron Deloney, son of Anthony Deloney, friend of the show. Aaron Deloney, Grant High School graduate, Oregon All-State Player of the Year for big schools, who is off at University of Vermont on a basketball scholarship. Go Catamounts. Charles Jordan served 14 years as director of Portland Parks and Rec, retired in 2003. He oversaw the creation of 44 new parks and natural areas during his tenure, played a key role in Portland landmarks including Pioneer Courthouse Square, Interstate Firehouse, Cultural Center, Delta Park, Southwest Community Center, renovations of Tom McCall, Waterfront Park, and the Matt Dishman Community Center, just to name some of them. And in 2012, the Charles Jordan Community Center was dedicated, becoming part of his legacy. At the time, Nick Fish, rest in peace, had this to say when he was Parks Commissioner, and I am quoting, He was the person who took Portland Parks and Recreation to the next level. Charles Jordan is a champion for the environment and conservation nationwide. 
Today, we have an interview on the Flint water crisis with journalist Jordan Sheraton. Jordan is head of the independent news outlet Status Coup. X-Ray. First up, today's Quick 6 local news rundown. Big shout out to Sam Smargiasi, intrepid member of the team. On Tuesday, Fred Meyer police officers guarding their dumpsters after disposing of thousands of perishable items. If you've been into the Fred Meyer, I was in there just the other day. They were on super low power, I think probably using backup generators. So they took the perishable food because they didn't think it was going to last. And they went and they threw it away. They put it in the dumpster. Word spread on social media with folks telling Portlanders they could go to the red dumpsters and collect the food. Pictures showed big heaps of packaged meat, juice, cheese, and more. But then, after just a few hours, a dozen police officers arrived to prevent more of the garbage from being taken, or a.k.a. the food. Fred Meyer released a statement, quote, Our store team became concerned that area residents would consume the food and risk foodborne illness, and they engaged local law enforcement out of abundance of caution. Officers did threaten to arrest who came close to the dumpster, out of an apparent abundance of caution. A local activist, Juniper Simon, has told the Oregonian the people who were there weren't there for selfish reasons. They were there to get food to distribute to hungry people around the city. Hoping everybody's safe out there. And now it's time for your daily dose of data. On Wednesday, the Oregon Health Authority confirmed 473 new coronavirus cases, bringing the state total to 151,257. An additional five COVID-related deaths were reported. 2,143 Oregonians have now died of the coronavirus. Currently, 191 COVID patients are hospitalized in the state. A delivery of 67,000 vaccination doses have been delayed by Midwestern storms. The doses, which were intended to arrive Tuesday, are currently stuck in Tennessee. As of now, Multnomah County has enough doses to complete vaccinations as planned. 5% of Oregonians have been fully vaccinated against the coronavirus. A Multnomah County Reserve deputy was fired some months after posting to social media, and I'm quoting, Love proud boys! Radek Pospisil was let go on Tuesday in a move he said was unfair. Here's his quote. They could have brought me in and spoken about it like adults. The most I should have been allowed to resign as others have been allowed to in the past. Multnomah County Sheriff's Office has not publicly expressed the firing was in fact linked to possible social media posts, but the let-go officer said that he was brought into the Sheriff's Office and they explained that HR had a strict policy on social media postings. Pospisil served as a volunteer for 14 years. Among the posts in question, one included a video from Proud Boys organizers day before the Delta Ponds rally on September 27th. Pospisil wrote, This is a funny, smart move, Proud Boys. Proud Boys are a male-only white nationalist group. Canada has declared them a terrorist organization. So, Proud Boys, blame Canada. On Wednesday, the Oregon legislature resumed meetings after a two-day pause brought on by the winter storm and power outages. Still, 120,000 homes in Clackamas and Marion counties lack power. The legislature is holding meetings virtually and postponing more in-person meetings until later in the five-month session. On Thursday, a floor session is scheduled to introduce new bills. House Speaker Tina Kotek requested such meetings be postponed until all members can be present. Senate President Peter Courtney expressed the challenges presented when meetings are postponed. He said, quote, I don't think you can make a perfect call on this. I'm one that believes when you're in an emergency situation, more than ever, the government has to function. 
The earthquake warning system, Shake Alert, is going to roll out in Oregon and Washington in early March. The system sends push notifications to your phone. It detects the start of an earthquake, estimates the magnitude, and where the shaking will occur. The notifications are intended to arrive seconds before the shaking begins, giving people enough time to run under a doorway. I don't know if you're supposed to run under a doorway. According to the Oregon Health Authority, here's what they have to say. If you're inside, stay inside. Don't run outside or to other rooms during the shaking. Drop down onto your hands and knees before the earthquake could knock you down. This protects you from falling, but still allows you to move. Cover your head and neck and your entire body, if possible, under the shelter of a sturdy table or desk. If there's no shelter nearby, get down near an interior wall or next to a low-lying furniture that's not going to fall on you and cover your head and neck with your arms and hands. Stay clear of windows or glass that could shatter objects that could fall on you. Hold on to your shelter or to your head and neck until the shaking stops. Be prepared to move with your shelter if the shaking shifts it around. Do not stand in a doorway. You are safer under a table. This is why we Google things when we're saying the news on the local. Don't stand in a doorway. In modern houses, doorways are no stronger than any other part of the house. A doorway does not protect you from the most likely source of injury, falling or flying objects. Most earthquake-related injuries are caused by falling or flying objects like TVs, lamps, glass, and bookcases, or by being knocked to the ground. So again, protect your head and neck, get under a sturdy table. Don't listen to dummies who tell you to get under doorways, the way they taught people in the 80s, back before building codes were better. Shake Alert, by the way, has been active in California since 2019. As of January 31st, 70% of seismic stations had been installed along the West Coast. Testing is going to begin February 25th. And finally, some good news. Earthquake scientists have discovered a new way to map the ocean floor with whale calls. Seismometers placed along the Blanco fault line apparently pick up sound waves from whale calls. Calls were able to be detected up to 1.5 miles deep. Researchers then realized they could analyze the data to determine the thickness of the layers of sediment. For example, whale calls travel at five and a half kilometers a second through basaltic basement layers. Scientists use this data to determine the source of earthquakes. And that's that today's, today's Quick, Quick Six, Six Local Rundown. X-ray. Now we'll hear from journalist Jordan Cheriton, who's covering the ongoing water crisis in Flint, Michigan. Jordan spoke with Jefferson Smith about the charges against former Michigan Governor Rick Snyder as well as the lack of recent media coverage on the crisis. Here are Jordan and Jefferson. In January, former Governor of Michigan Rick Snyder was charged over his role in the Flint water crisis. On January 14th, the Michigan Attorney General's office announced charges for Snyder, as well as eight other state officials. Those charges included involuntary manslaughter, perjury, and willful neglect of duty. Joining us now, journalist Jordan Cheriton. Jordan is head of the independent progressive news site Status Coup. I think I've got that name right. Good morning, Jordan. Hey, how you doing? I am well. You've been covering the event in Flint for years. How did you start covering the story? What first struck your fancy? Was it after people were already kind of aware of what was going on nationally and you wanted to dig in deeper? Or did you start paying attention even earlier? Yeah, it actually came after most of the mainstream media had already left Flint. Uh, I was at a conference in 2016 uh, covering something, and Flint resident came up to me kind of uh, begging for coverage, saying the mainstream media had kind of abandoned uh, Flint 
for the you know Trump reality show, and um, I went there uh, that summer, uh, 2016, and uh, immediately realized that this was uh, still a massive crisis, and uh, also realized that there was uh, quite the governmental cover-up uh, going on uh, to cover up what really happened. So that kind of uh, you know struck my uh, investigative itch, and I've gone back since uh, you know almost 20 times. You recently published an article in The Intercept. You say in it that Snyder knew about, former governor of Michigan, knew about a Legionnaire's disease outbreak in Flint as early as like six years ago, like October of 2014. When there, and the reason that date is relevant is that there then would have still been time to save some lives. What am I missing about that? Let's first refresh a little bit the memories of our listeners as we have all been paying attention to the Trump reality show. What's Legionnaire's disease? How is it connected to the Flint water crisis? Even just that background would be useful. Yeah, so Legionnaire's is a uh, waterborne bacteria. It, it comes from water. Um, it generally uh, is most, it spreads mostly in the air. So, you know, vapor, uh, steam, from a shower. Uh, it spreads through cooling towers, air conditioners uh, are really breeding, uh, breeding grounds. So when Flint switched to the Flint River uh, in 2014, uh, they did not add uh, the chemicals that normally you would add to prevent um, lead from leaching off of old pipes uh, all over the country. Our infrastructure under the ground that delivers our water is you know, anywhere from 50 to 100 years old in a given town or city. So because those chemicals were not added, uh, the pipes, uh, the layer that's supposed to protect from protect uh, the lead from leaching, uh, there's also bacteria called the biofilm. There's biofilm in those pipes. And because the proper anti-corrosion chemicals were not added to the pipes, uh, bacteria, Legionella uh, bacteria, started leaching into the pipes and, you know, not to get too in the weeds, but generally to stop that, they add more chlorine to the system. But because uh, Flint um, has so many abandoned homes, uh, you know, not using their water, uh, that chlorine was not moving fast enough to kill the bacteria. So you have this de very deadly, uh, it's a bacterial pneumonia that if you're immunocompromised, um, you know, have any health issues can be deadly, even if you're not immunocompromised can be deadly, and it killed the state of Michigan under Rick Snyder, put out the number 12. Uh, PBS has done some reporting since then that it could be as much as 115, and I'm doing reporting, uh, follow-up reporting that indicates the true number of people who died of Legionella might be significantly more, we're talking hundreds and hundreds, and uh, what we found was while this bacterial pneumonia was spreading and killing people, Governor Snyder, his chief of staff, his health director, over a two-day period in October 2014, just a few weeks before his reelection, were, were on the phone upwards of 22 times. Um, investigators found this scrambling on the phone. These three had not talked that much, really ever, uh, and while they were on the phone, uh, specifically the chief of staff, the health director had spoken nine times in two days. They had only spoken once before, months earlier. 
and four of those phone calls after the chief of staff and the health director got off the phone, the chief of staff immediately called Governor Snyder. So the implication obviously being that they recognize there was a crisis it's two weeks before the election, and maybe then we go into speculation, but seems relatively fair speculation, that what did they fail to do after these 22 phone calls, that, you know, nine phone calls and then one phone call, that they could have or should have done? Yeah, I mean, uh, as the governor, by law, if there is a health catastrophe, you have a duty to notify the public. Uh, So does the health department. Um, So they failed to notify the public. And the thing is, his health department at the time was aware of this Legionella outbreak, that there was a serious increase compared to other years. Uh, His environmental department knew there was a serious outbreak. Um, there were emails going around from the environmental department telling the health department not to make a public announcement because it, quote, might inflame the situation. Uh, we learned uh, in our report that Snyder's environmental director, who reports to the governor, uh, had a meeting in Flint that same month, just days before Snyder's reelection, where the outbreak of Legionella was discussed and another environmental official in that meeting said, and I quote, this may blow into a PR nightmare. So you have a public duty at that point. You might not know, you know, there was debate about what is causing the outbreak. Is it because Flint switched to the Flint River? Is it something else? Whatever the source is, you have a, you have a duty to notify the public there is a dangerous bacteria in your water so that the public can make a decision. You know, it's very similar Obviously, the nation was outraged when they heard President Trump on the phone with Bob Woodward earlier this year, um, basically acknowledging how deadly coronavirus could be. Uh, but then he went out to the public, kind of poo-pooing it, that it's, it's just the same thing as the flu. Well, imagine if it came out that Trump, his top advisors, were scrambling on the phone and COVID you know, is invisible. Nobody said anything about it. I mean, imagine the outrage if we knew he knew about it but didn't notify the public. You know, I'm not comparing Legionella to COVID, but, you know, it's a similar principle of as the president or as a governor, if you know there's a deadly something in people's water, in the air, you know, that would be your duty to alert the public. It was part of what they were up against, and again, I want to go backwards a little bit. In fact, I want to, keep, I want to take us even backwards from where I was going to go, which is why should we care? Okay. Now, maybe we should care because people died. Maybe we should care because hundreds of uh, stillbirths resulted. Uh, maybe we should care because we care generally about humanity. All of that already happened. Why else should we care? Well, I think the mainstream media, uh, honestly, has been very sloppy in this story and essentially reported whatever the state of Michigan told them. I think we should care because, really, this is not just this was not just some, uh, you know, terrible tragedy. This was actually a privatization scheme that went terribly wrong. And that's going on all over the country, including probably in Portland and Oregon. Um, what happened here, the reason that Flint was actually using the Flint River uh, in the first place, it was supposed to be a temporary thing for two years because a brand new regional water pipeline was being built. And that brand new regional water pipeline, it was called the KWA pipeline, that was essentially running the same exact parallel path 
as the existing water pipeline that Flint had gotten water from uh, Lake Huron, which is a glacial, you know, Great Lakes, clean water they had gotten from Lake Huron via Detroit's water pipeline since the 1960s without ever having an issue. What happened was uh, a lot of some banks, some Genesee and Flint city officials, some real estate developers, they saw a money-making opportunity because if we could build this brand new pipeline under the guise of it's going to save Flint money, Detroit was charging too much to Flint, then, well, that the raw water in that pipeline, because this new pipeline was going to be delivering raw water, uh, while Flint in the, in the Detroit pipeline was getting finished, already treated water, uh, you know, just the difference is treated water, it's already treated, the chemicals are added to make it safe, raw water then has to be treated. Well, what, what do you need a lot of raw water for? Things like fracking, things like uh, meat packing. Uh, General Motors needed raw water for its car parts. Um, agriculture, sugar beet farming, a whole host of things in what was described as the blue economy. And Governor Snyder had doubled down on natural gas, i.e. fracking. So, I mean, the media kind of reported on this. Hmm. This new pipeline, the deal, the financial deal to even allow Flint to borrow money to join that pipeline was allegedly fraudulent. Uh, There were charges against several state officials for misleading bondholders and um, illegally allowing Flint to even borrow money to join this pipeline. So why people should care besides the humanity, besides the fact that there are children forever with brain damage, uh, adults who are dying that I that I know and, and speak to that are getting sicker and sicker. This is what happens when Republicans, quote unquote, run government like a business, which Governor Snyder said he wanted to do. This is what happens when you look at cities and residents as numbers on a balance sheet, which is what happened here. And I would also say uh, people should care because what I what we have broken is a, is a serious government cover up. And th- that's not my words. That's what investigators concluded, that Governor Snyder and his top officials were actively covering this up. And I think it's the job of journalists to expose that because people should care if these officials are not held accountable. What is to stop your local town or state officials from doing the same thing if, if they don't if they see there's no accountability elsewhere? So helpful. So very helpful. So many of us who aren't that close to Flint, although a dear friend of mine used to used to be my direct report in the nonprofit we started years ago, uh, was uh, is from Flint, Michigan. And so it it did. Feel, in, in fact, a uh, um, uh, the and I used to know I used to know the mayor of Flint, Michigan. Oh boy, he was Rhodes Scholar kid. Uh, uh, Dane Walling. Exactly, Dane Walling. Dane Walling and I worked on a campaign together years ago, uh, and uh, and so I it, the Flint has felt close, but connecting it to not just oh government did something that wasn't great, and a bunch of people were hurt, and it's really expensive, and it's going to be really expensive to deal with, and people aren't caring enough about it because it's Flint. Like all of that leaked out. All of that sort of feels like it's in the conversation ether. But the understanding this as a story of greed and privatization and profiteering, and then the uh, and then not just city officials but state officials 
arranging things for their donors and friends and not thinking sufficiently about the health of folks and then not coming clean to make it clean, that's a story that has not been told as well. Well, I'd also say, as we've reported, there, Governor Snyder actually had a top official, his environmental advisor, and uh, she was his environmental advisor and legal counsel in October 2014, so the same time period, six months after the water switch, two weeks after Governor Snyder's up for re-election, she actually emailed the governor's chief of staff, other top officials, saying, emergency, this is an urgent issue, we should switch back to Detroit. This was, a, this was an environmental advisor. She was a Harvard uh, graduate, Georgetown, I mean, a real you know, expert on the environment, on water contamination, and she was sounding the alarm to his chief of staff. This is somebody who had a weekly meeting with the governor about other matters. So this was not the janitor saying this. This was his top advisor. She actually was then put on a call with Flint's emergency manager and the governor's top advisor where she said the same thing. We need, you know, there's E. coli in the water. There's uh, other chemicals in the water. We need to switch back to Detroit. And she was told it would be too expensive. What I don't think people realize is what, why she was told it would be too expensive. Look back to that deal I just told you about, that financial deal, which was really about privatization. Flint was already on the hook for tens of millions of dollars in bonds because they had been allowed, as a very, very broke city, they had been allowed to borrow $85 million to join this under construction pipeline. So at the time, you had experts under Snyder saying, advising, we need to switch back while lives, yes, could still be saved. And because Flint was basically handcuffed to these bonds, uh, well, they weren't going to pay for the bonds as well as a million dollars a month for, to Detroit water. So again, this was a financial decision not just about saving money, but about making money. And I think that's a big distinction that a lot of people who maybe haven't been correctly informed about what happened here might not know about. And, um, you know, it's, it's a bipartisan thing. There were Democratic officials on the local level involved with this. Obviously, Snyder was a Republican. Um, you know, you talk to Flint residents. They don't think President Obama uh, did enough uh, to expedite the, you know, removal of destructive pipes. Obviously, President Trump didn't lift a finger for Flint. But at the end of the day, yes, um, this is not just a story of some government officials being negligent. Uh, This was, from everything I know and and have reported, this was an intentional cover-up. You know, at one point, if Governor Snyder would have done the right thing, he, he could have been really a hero. You know, somebody who said, you know, we made a mistake, but we acted as soon as we knew. But instead, uh, from our reporting, there were uh, clear efforts to stop this information from going public. Jordan Sheraton, thank you so much with Status Coup. Also, you want to check out, people, the article in The Intercept on the Flint, Michigan, and Rick Snyder, Legionnaire's disease story and the Flint water crisis. Thank you so much for reporting. Thank you so much for spending time with us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks to Jordan for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in about 30 minutes. Thanks for your subscription. Do you consider it a subscription? It is like one, and you don't have to pay for it. This is a miracle. You have to understand what a miracle this is. 
Say thanks to Sam Smargiasi. Say thanks to Will Romy. Say thanks to Julia Oppenheimer. Say thanks to Emily Gilliland and the whole darn crew when you get a chance to see them. And thank you, democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.